Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. Our show airs at 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. on the third Tuesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can look for the podcasts at cjsw.com. Christina Bailey was a schizophrenic writer and artist living in Toronto. Martha Bailey is the author of six novels. From the search of Heinrich Schlagel, she created a multimedia art project. The work was published by Actes Sud in France. Her novel, The Incident Report, was long listed for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Martha lives in Toronto. Our interview in this episode contains content about schizophrenia and mental health challenges that may be sensitive to some listeners. Martha Bailey, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you for having me. Hello, Dinfney (laughs) and Cody. (laughs) We're so happy you're here. You're in Calgary um, this December to for a word fest event and also an event here at the University of Calgary tomorrow, I believe. Um, and you're here with your book, Sister Language. So perhaps we could start because this is such an intricate, beautiful, complicated, moving book. Perhaps you can tell our listeners a little bit about, it's okay. not just a book. Yeah, no, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's a, first of all, it's a collaboration. So it functions as a sort of call and response between myself and my older sister and Christina. And Christina had been struggling with schizophrenia for many decades. Um, In fact, I think she had her first psychosis when she was 12, though none of us were aware of it at Mm. that point. Um, So a long, long history of mental illness. And um, she was also a prolific writer. And this book came out of a desire to get her poetry out into the world. And she suffered from something also called um, formal thought disorder, which the book begins with a discussion of. And that means that language breaks apart a whole lot. So she was completely at home with Joyce, Beckett, Stein, and if you said, for instance, the word appear, she said it would break into app and ear or app and pair. So conversation was a huge challenge. And she says at one point in the book, it could reduce her to a state of exhaustion, the effort of suppressing that fragmenting of language. On the other hand, it made it a place where she could go wild and completely play. And she was a virtuoso of neologisms. So the book is structured... um, as you already hinted, it has its own um, visual richness, in mm-hmm. part because my sister only used a typewriter. She had in the past used um, laptops. And, uh, and at the point when we wrote this book, she refused to have a telephone. And she did use email through the public library system, but only because her psychiatrist insisted there had to be a way of connecting to her. And she used an old typewriter. So all of the her text is done on the typewriter. And when I <clears throat> first approached her in 2017 and said, how, let's make, you know, could we try to get your work out into the world? Um, we came to an agreement that her words would be on one page 
and my words on the opposite page. She said, that way our two texts won't contaminate each other. <laughs> and she had already told me that I had come to her saying, I've shown some of, you know, I've, I've asked uh, a splendid experimental poet to have a look at some of your work because I adore it, but I'm your sister and I'm not a poet and it would be great to show it to somebody else, and so-and-so has offered to do this, and her immediate reaction was, no, I'm not particularly interested. But what I would like, she said, would be if you would create um, a framework in prose to create a context for my work, and if I could tell you something about formal thought disorder, and you could write that up in prose, because she claimed that she couldn't produce prose. And as we soon discover as the book progresses, she can produce prose yeah, <laughs> with no problem. Very articulate prose. Yeah, there's, so, there's certain pages where all yeah, of a sudden yeah, it's a completely yeah. different mind. Abs it's very linear. Absolutely. And she yeah. had many, she had an extremely fragmented mind. So part of her problem with prose was she saw it as a betrayal of that fragmentation. And she was constantly torn between the desire to make herself comprehensible to others and the feeling that if she ceased to express that fragmentation, then she was betraying herself. So it was a fine line. She was always trying to walk between those things. But she found the letter format. She started to write partway through the process of our exchange. She started to write me letters. And she said it was that form that allowed her to a surprising degree to create page after page of lucid prose. So she was entirely mm. capable of it, or a part of her was capable of it, but it depended on the situation and the context. Right. So at the very beginning, um, I came and asked her, how can we get our, her work out there, as I've already said? And she gave me, I said, why don't we start with maybe about an essay length piece? Maybe give me 12 pages of your writing and I'll try and respond in some way. And she's, and that was once we decided that we would put her, her writing would occupy one page and mine on the other so they wouldn't contaminate. Right. And then very quickly, and because hers were all typewritten, we got out an old school binder and I would produce my writing on the computer at home, print it out, and then we passed this binder back and forth between us and pretty soon typed footnotes started appearing on my pages. <laughs> so there was a kind of transgression <laughs> that happened. And then after that, she started typing these long letters in which she started explaining things to me about schizophrenia, about her way of living day to day mm -hmm. that she would never have expressed to me directly. Um, so there was something safer about that form? There was, there was much, that one step removed yeah. and having to look you in the eye? Yeah, and there was something much safer in that form. And I was fascinated. Um, when I go to the university tomorrow to address this group of psychiatry students, I'll be with Clem Mantini, yeah. Martini, Martini. from um, Calgary. And when I was reading his Bitter Medicine, I was interested that letter writing formed that same bridge for him and his brother Oliver. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a point in the book where he said there was almost no communication happening and he sent a letter imagining that he would never receive a response and received one and then a correspondence developed. Mm -hmm. So um, so clearly that that is uh, that fascinated me that in both instances that that form of let of the letter was um, a source of great relief, at least to Christina. Yeah. That she could express things 
So something there. about this quiet space where you can, in an uninterrupted way, yeah. parcel it into one piece yeah. and, to her, and send it off because there's that delay yeah. maybe too. Yeah. And even if she wasn't sending it, just the uh, the fact that it was addressed to a given person. Mm-hmm. And she even says, because as you'll see, um, as we can't show you <laughs> on radio, um, the book is very visual. She was producing a lot of visual art all the time as well. And there are photographs in here and some photographs of paintings of hers and things that she made called dog ears with folded text from Joyce. Um, and just the texture of her write, of, of what she did with a typewriter. Um, her, write, her poetry is very visual. So um, she said that even just the, the rectangle the fact of the the idea of the of a of a letter as a certain page, a certain physical space, also was reassuring to her. In schizophrenia, there's such a need for containment for order, Be- Is it for order, order and, containment and containment. Because she said you're chronically unlocatable, and to the point where you feel that you don't even necessarily exist. There's a page in here where we reproduced a small sentence on a paper that she had taped to the fridge that says, um, I think it says, language believes in the patient's real existence. And she said that for her, that literally told her she existed for a period of months, where otherwise... That sentence on the fridge. That sentence. So she truly, language, when she says in the book... Only language gets me. She really did inhabit language. It had replaced her body. She had a a deep loathing of her physical body. And so language was literally where she lived. And because she was so fragmented, language for her had to be this exploding, ever-expanding universe. The utterly brilliant universe. Yeah. I mean, the way that she feels language. Yeah. And yeah, she talks a lot from Stein about sound aura. Yeah. It's very musical. It it's it's yeah. amazingly brilliant. Yeah, you know, it makes as the reader, I felt like I've never seen that word before until I saw it this way, and all the things that it now means are different. Right. It, you know, it was such a revelation. Little snippets of revelation. Yeah. And there's an energy in that language. I mean, for me, it was quite terrifying actually, <laughs> to write this book with her because I sort of felt like, okay, I'm now like this Baroque violinist next to nuclear fission. Yeah. It was just such uh, an explosion of creativity. And one, there's an American um, writer who's going to be actually teaching this in a few weeks in L.A., and he said to him it's a, it's a counterpoint of flight and ground and I am clearly the groundedness, and she is the flight. Um, so, I don't know. Would you like me to read a passage? Do you sure, wanna, let's do just that. Just because it's hard to give a yeah, sense of really this, what her... While you're looking at the, for the passage, I mean, this book is almost like a, a scrapbook, uh, a photo, a family photo album, a journal. You know, there's so many different elements woven into it. And then your two voices that are so profoundly jumping off the page. <laughs> I'll read you um I'll read you maybe the opening 
two pages just so you get an immediate, because it sort of locates it. Okay. And it gives you a little sense of her living conditions, a tiny bit. Um, and also immediately with her is you get a sense of how she plays with words. Okay. I mean, there's so much humor all the way through. Even in a, um, a text that I found since her passing away that's about how one of her stratagems or strategies for getting around a wave of suicidality when it would hit. Um, and even within that description, there's humor. Uh -huh. So her humor was constant. So she starts out, I want to write about how, about how schizophrenic cognitive disorganization and formal thought disorder are a piranha that turns the schizophrenic into a pariah, but isn't the subject too overwhelming, too great in its scope, and to be writing from inside the problem as the problem. And then there are a whole lot of um, dots and question marks and various type um, ands and things that go right off the edge of the page just to give that visual element. Um, and then my response is, I turn the key and push, the door begins to swing but bangs against its chain, a barrier she's fashioned from a leash. This means she's home, mouth to slit. Sister, hello, sister. From some room she comes. The chain unfastened, I step inside, Admitted. Begin by admitting. A good beginning, but how much either party will admit or admit to is never a known factor. I've brought a desire. We begin. We've begun before and often. It so happens this day our desires agree to discuss language, the many ways it rescues and fails her. We are readers. She became a reader earlier and more avidly than I. Much lends itself to reading. Here's my reading of her hallway and the two rooms opening off it, few sources of physical comfort. Evidence of other forms of succor, objects stacked and ordered, things grouped in evolving compositions, small and large material repetitions, an arid calm, yarn and wire, smell of enclosure, paper, paper, ink, anxiety leaking and drafting, paint, scissors, typewriter, open box of typewriter ribbons, glue, dust, more paper, language, everywhere. So that's sort of um, a snapshot of her life, but also of her, what it was to inhabit her. What it was to life. inhabit that space. Yeah. And, um, and very much one of the important things was that we started with a constraint, that we would be discussing language, period. So everything always had to have its parameters in order to make it less terrifying. Right. And uh, this book would certainly not exist if we hadn't had very strict parameters. And yet the odd aspect of that is that, as you say, or you mentioned just before we started, it's more like a river. It's more like getting in your canoe and reading the river to go down this book than anything else. So the parameters are there, but then immediately everything just seems to sort of explode out and meander and bounce off. We're bouncing off each other, or that's how I see it. 
so I could I could read on, but instead, because we're going to discuss the book, I'll maybe just read you a tiny passage from something that she calls Reds, just because it gives you a little bit a sense of her musicality. Yeah, the, or, that would be great that because different? a lot of there's a lot of word play, very yeah, beautiful. A lot of word play. Wordplay. And in this, she says, there's a little introduction to this that she wrote. And she says, today is the next day. It's around 8 a.m. And I'm as ready, unready for the roofers as I'll ever be. The extra meds are helping, plus waking surrounded by my reds. Nothing like being one of an agglomeration of selves, another of whom makes what is necessary to the rest of us to keep us going. The project's are mine, in quotation marks, in the sense that there are a few of the projects of an aggregate of selves to which I belong, agglomeration, aggregate, probably not the right words. Hmm. Take it from one who knows. Reds lie abed. They are beds of roses unarisen. Reds are rising or about to be, about to be she. Reds set out to be where she, where will she turn up? Always where the reds are, she, she shall. Reds minister to her. What are reds administering at the moment? Reds sap nothing. Reds are pure energy plus the crumbling that is physicality. Reds are shoveling their ahistoricity into a heap, then jumping on it like little demons. Pure-bred reds slamming their bodies into an anthill thrill. Reds pause. Reds bring themselves about as clauses. Reds are sentient sentences. Reds are the grammar that she is at the moment. The moment has tusks. She has red tasks. One task is to redden anything. Through reds, she nears redemption. Clear a space for it. In reds, there are no jurisdictions. There is no jurisprudence. Reds are largely impudent, and she is their impudence. Reds are on the blink when not blanketing. Reds blank out when. Wow. And in, of course, the context of her having taken her life in August, it, it I now reread. Shifts that again. It shifts everything. The redemption, the clearer space for it, the... And you realize when you, well, as I look back through other texts of hers, yeah, the she was chronically suicide. You know, it literally was writing that kept her alive. I came across um, just a few days ago in this binder of letters that she had continued to write, as though it's sort of as though we reached a certain point and we had about two hundred pages. And I said, okay, we have to simply stop. <laughs> here if we are serious about turning this into a book because otherwise it's a tome and it's I, not I have happen. to and I knew that I was confront this was someone who had binders and binders and binders of manuscripts right. and she said take it away don't let me touch it because if I look at it I'm just going to want to replace each piece I gave you with some other piece I will simply destroy it so take it away don't show it to me again until it's solid you can, and then her, her instructions were, you can move things around, put them in whatever order make, you think works, um, and you can remove things, or you can ask for more things to be added, but whatever is there can't, can't be altered in any way. So okay. not a punctuation mark, not a placement, everything was scanned 
directly from the pages she gave us. So nothing there could be altered. But the letters as you go through it are not in chronological order. So when I went away, I tried to sort of give it a bit of an arc. To me, the arc was this growing trust, going from my page won't touch your page, to the footnotes on the other page, to a sort of the the development of these long letters, and then our decision to insert text she'd written and texts I'd written to create that sort of um, call, and call and response and um, duet, if you like, between two mm-hmm. di- very different writings, and and then to me, there's a there's a there's a, a a diminishing of energy on her part. She starts searching for this self-silencing white manuscript, which is this opus that she can't find and wants to quote from. So the fact that she can't find the very manuscript that was meant to be self-silencing, um, to me, sort of brought us towards an ending of the book. So I reshaped it in some way. I I removed very little from what Mm -hmm. we had and then brought it back to her and she looked through it and she was happy with the order of it. And I should say she did see the late, she never saw the finished book. She never held the book? No. No. But she saw the, um, the late, she saw the galleys. So she had input in terms of the layout, discussion about the size of the book. She initially wanted it to be an eight and a half by 11 um, book because that would be the, the closest of the, the, the page of, of the piece of paper. It would be yeah. the closest to that. And there was a considerable back and forth with the designer about that, who was convinced that that would be um, that that would diminish the authority of the book. That it would be more like a zine or a. And Christina was so much in the visual arts world that to her th- that format. And she keep going, but wave books and the say they do these fantastic poetry books that are this size. Various other considerations came in, considerations of cost, consideration of who could print it. Right. Um, Coach House, who is the printer, who's a magnificent printer, couldn't do that size. So we would have also had to go to um, a printer that we knew less well and had less faith in. And I'm actually, when um, when we launched the book, Zab Hobart, who's the amazing designer who agreed to do the design, she really now just teaches and only does very specific projects, but agreed to do this one, and I'm delighted she did because it was hugely challenging. And even the printers at Coach House said it was <laughs> it was not an easy job. Huh. So, um, so, so kind Christina, of a, little, a minor miracle that it's all in side of cover now. Yeah, absolutely. And so she did have a say in that layout and when there were certain because when we started to decide what would be some of the pages the footnotes we had to turn it around and the pages her type pages are vertical or are turned on their side so the footnotes would fit in and we ended up with certain blank spaces where then we added in say a painting of she had a, a white painting called mapping the maplessness and that we decided okay we'll put a photo of that in so there are certain places we moved around some of the visual elements mm-hmm. but she and I had agreed right from the start that her writing is very dense and that if we were going to do anything together we would want sort of a visual punctuation we'd want other elements to just give people a chance to stop and <laughs> catch their breath right. and um so all of those considerations, she was a part of that was a back and forth between us. Mm-hmm. 
And then she did see the cover. She chose the colors for the cover. She saw the beautiful blurbs on the back. She knew that someone's going to be teaching it in a course called Mad World at Trent um, University in Ontario. So she knew that it had, um, it had been, she had some affirmation, some confirmation, I should say, that this was, that her writing was going to be appreciated. And that was the end of a long, long battle with her psychiatrist who had insisted that her writing was non-communicative. And for years... not helpful. Not helpful at all. The only way that I can at all get my head around that is to think that the psychiatrist saw her role as trying to chip away at a very destructive psychosis, at a very persecuting psychosis. And so Christina had told her that much of her writing was code for this psychosis. So she would have had so she saw it as a she threat. would have had a different relationship to Christina's writing, but to have not I, I still it's a it was a terrible to my mind, a terrible way of approaching that. Yeah. And um that's tragic. It is. And and I will read later in, in a text that Christina wrote, she said the writing of this project un, sort of was more healing than 10 years of... Therapy? Of psychiatry. Jeez. Um, and she said in uh, one of the letters that I found, and I'll just read it to you because it um, it ties in with... I think it sheds some interesting light on why she does what she does in terms of syntax. She loves to say screwing with syntax. Mm -hmm. And she wrote, um, I know that one thing my psychotic mind does is confuse categories to do with the nature of existence. Never mind blurring. The lines distinguishing animate and inanimate, human and non-human, barely exist. Even heavily medicated with an antipsychotic, I still have a hard time believing in those lines. I know how to behave as if those distinctions were clear, but really, they aren't. I think that my need to screw with linguistic categories, with syntax and morphology, word order and word formation, is a reworking out in language of my psychotic screwing with existential categories. The psychosis is involuntary and terrifying and inescapable. But the similar language disorder is one I can play with and celebrate. It's creatively fertile. Here, I can have some say. So, so it was so that. So the language was the world where she could have creative control. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the only place she had any control. Right. She referred to all of us as humans, you know, the human world. She didn't consider herself. herself she did not consider herself part of that. And when you think of the degree of isolation that that would bring to bear um, and that your reality is never going to be accepted, it's, um, Must be it makes it astonishing to me that she lived as long as she did, right. that she made it to 61, and it makes it even more astonishing to me that that she let me in the door far enough for this book to come together. Yeah. So, yeah, mostly deep gratitude to her for her, her courage. 
And so what an honor for you to to help birth it to the world, <laughs> but well, also what a huge weight it must be to carry that. <laughs> yeah, schizophrenia is not, as she says in this at one point, I said I, in the book I say to her at one point, she starts writing in these letters to me saying, Dear Martha, and then of course I should be responding, Dear Christina. And I realized as I was writing that down that it completely threw me to be addressed. I mean, of course, if I saw her and she was coming to dinner, or we were, I would say, hi, Christina. I would call. But in some part of my mind, I was creating a distance, referring her to her as my sister. Right. So in a way, and that the ambiguity of sister, which can be both something that ties you in the deepest of ways, but also if you label someone my sister, you're, you're, it's different There's than a using box. a name. And, yeah. I, and I realized that the name carries the whole of childhood, right? It, it car- and, and that dissonance between the person that I used to call this name 20 years ago or 30 years ago and who you are now, and I have so little, so little idea or such a blurred, unclear idea of how those fit together. How those fit together. Right. You, you never know where you stand when someone is is as unwell as that, because she would be perform, and, and I don't even want to say performing. I start to say performing, but I don't even think she it was, was a doing perfor- her best to measure up as human. Yeah, when and it, she didn't even feel that that's who she was. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, so then, who did you see? Did you see the Shamira, or did you exactly? See and so you would, you would Christina. Exactly. And I wouldn't see it as a performance. I believe that, you know, she came over and wasn't, you know, she'd love to come over. My husband's a great cook. She'd come over. It was probably the only cooked meal she had of the week. And she would be delighted by that. That was all genuine sisterly delight. But then it would only be a few minutes later and I would feel like I was being read very carefully. Huh. Almost dissected for information, just in in a way that was. So that she could respond to you the way she thought well, she should, or no, because she was digging deeper in you. When I when I spoke with her psychiatrist, to the extent after her death, to the extent we want to believe. I mean, I think the psychiatrist, however deeply I regret certain of her approaches. Um, she was dealing with Christina's psych. Christina was revealing her psychosis to her in a way that she wasn't to me. Right. And she said that the psychosis is constantly feeding. It's 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 looking for information that will support it. Ah. Uh. So she said, for instance, in a the um one of my previous novels, The Search for Heinrich Schlegel. Um, it was Christina who provided me with the stunning image that's on the cover. So not having read the book yet, but just having had me describe the character to her, she said, I think I found Heinrich Schlegel and brought me this amazing artwork, um, which is on the cover, um, a surrealist piece of a man in a suit, in a sort of strange, natural s- setting. When she actually started to read the book, she got as far as a passage, it takes place in a small German town, and there's a scene that describes the fact that the farmers, when they have these new, modern, larger tractors, unfortunately, the deer had the habit of coming out and birthing in the long grass. And so, with 
a sort of catastrophic frequency, young fawns would have their legs severed Aye. by these large tractors because the tractor, the the farmer was so high up, he couldn't see he didn't anymore. see yeah. anymore what was in front of him. And she came to me and she said, "Well, I read as far as that passage, and then I had to stop." And she was totally calm. And I said, "That's no problem. I understand. It's a it's a violent." horrible passage. Right. What her psychiatrist told me was that when she reached that passage, that confirmed for her that I was part of an animal torture group. Oy. So she she had she part her psychosis as opposed to um sometimes say from what I understand from bitter medicine, the and Clem would be able to book. he would be better able to confirm this. Um, I I may be misinterpreting, but what I got from the book was that psychosis had more to do with the outside world coming at you. And Christina had that as well, to go to a, an office and apply for an OHIP card. She'd have to put on sunglasses and listen to heavy metal because she said it was like being in Mengele's waiting room. Um, but she also believed that my parents had taken us to... York University and tortured us as children and there was a whole you know my mother was a sociopath who had blinded her with a needle when she was a child there was a whole it, it entered right it entered right into the family so that when you say again that this degree of trust is extraordinary it is because I could become at any given moment part of this torture scheme. Right. And you never, so I wouldn't say it was a performance, it's just there were different parts of her. There were so many layers of there things was, going on. There were so many layers of things going on at any given moment. Right. Huh, amazing. Yeah. So in this book, I think, um, I think what's wonderful is that we have um, her energy and her play. And we have, in a sense, the closest she came to safety. And it also just changes, as, as, as you were saying, you saw words in a way that you didn't before. And for me, as I was going through it, it was definitely changing my relationship to language, just to see language as a place that you could, that was, that's ever expanding, that's not fixed, where the rules can be played with. But there's and, such a joyfulness. Too, yeah, yeah, in that. Especially coming from someone who must often have not felt safe and perhaps joy would have been harder to find when you think such horrible thoughts and threats yeah. are swirling there all the time. Yeah. And then to see the playfulness and joyfulness come out in the language. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. She says um, in another piece, she says, everything that happens to me generates text, regenerates me. But until these letters came along, what what, what has happened to me in this generative, uh, and then I can't quite read it, in this generative sense, has never been social. Huh. So that's back to the letters. But I really just wrote that, read that passage in terms of language being a constant sense of rebirth. In fact, I, I think there's a place where one of my responses was something about understanding how for her language would be... Um, 
she needed to see it as that, as the as the exploding universe. Right. She she wasn't looking for for a, a womb or anything warm. Emotion, she says, in one place here is um, any form of emotion is a form of rape. Yeah, that was a passage that you came back to a couple of times too. In yeah, her. because it, it because it shocked me. Here it is. It says she says um, I had asked her. When formal thought disorder breaks every word into its unconstituent parts, when unbridled patterning and detaching consumes you, is fleeing from emotional content, what is at work, or a purely chemical rampage? And that I, that's one of the first places where she came back and put a footnote on my on page, page because and, she wanted to address the rules. and blurred the rules yeah. in order to address that question. And her answer was, good question. It's basically brain chemistry on the rampage. But yes, you and I experience emotion differently. When I undergo an emotion, whatever it is, I feel physically violated, raped by the emotion. I feel like an apple being cored, gored. Also, whereas I gather that my writing comes across as unemotional, and more so, the more real it is, I experience my writings as teeming with my version of emotion. If I'm feeling confused and shattered, then that's how my language will look on the page. It will be a kind of hymn to the unorchestrated enthusiasm. The unorchestrated enthusiasm has a manic quality. And she said that basically enthusiasm was something she could she could feel. Um, because when I wrote back, and, and I've deviated, when I was saying about writing her name, mm -hmm. I sent her, I, I asked her about that. I said, you know, my worry using your name is that I could slip back into thinking, oh, I've got my sister back. Now I can fall into this warm embrace. And her answer came on a, an email um, from the library, and she said, Hi, M. I think I can see what you said about worrying that you might lull yourself into expecting an intimacy and a warmth from our earlier lives. I'm who I am these days, as are you. I think we're both very much more our true standalone selves. But yes, there are danger areas, and the past is one of mine. Schizophrenia isn't a warm condition and emotion is a threat. But what I do experience positively is excitement about sharing language and our, our project with you. This feels to me like a very real and thrilling way to communicate. Hope this helps. See. And when she says our project, that's referring to herself as our. She always referred to herself in the plural because she was a plurality right. of selves. And even as she's writing, there's a text somewhere in here where she says, you know, oh, I see I'm using semicolons again. That must be a different part of me yeah. coming in and taking over. So there's this inter introspection and then distance and then, you know, she's inside of it and then she's outside of it and there's all this wisdom. And it's what made it very confusing because if you imagine someone who's as articulate as Christina was, and is brilliant, who can come and sit down and have a, we would meet at a one coffee shop, always the same coffee shop, because that made it more secure for her. Um, 
and then it soon became a verb. We would green bean because the name of the coffee shop was green, the green beanery. Anywhere where play of language came in, that increased your sense of being understood. Right. And so immediately, you know, even just that would help. And um, so we would go green beaning and... And in that coffee shop, what we we had very there were there were sort of parameters. We would speak minimally about family. We would mostly concentrate on discussing art and literature because that was where it was safe. That's and she would speak brilliantly about whatever she'd just seen and because and because she wasn't raising a family <laughs> or earning a living or and was spending her whole day hanging out in the library she kept feeding me fantastic artists you know Rachel Whiteread other um, Joseph Bays you know all sorts of people that I might not have encountered whose work I might not have encountered had Christina not brought them to me because she had the time to because she was exploring explore all those things and then she would talk about and it it could be very difficult to put together those pieces and go, okay, but there is a reason why this person is living the way they are, you know, to realize that behind that, there was this profound illness that, yeah, it, it so it was confusing for everybody. It was, yeah. the world was extremely confusing for her and trying to negotiate, it, it was, it was tricky. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd done a much better job, but it was tricky. But we got the book. Well, I was going to say, there, there's this beautiful book that you have. And tell me a little bit, Martha Bailey, about the intention of what happens next for the book. So, Meaning, mm. so where, what, what are your hopes for it? So you have your sister's voice, your voice. You have a, a huge... Uh, context and text about what it's like to live with this disease that for so many people who who don't know what it is is very scary and mysterious and yeah. you know so there's tremendous insight in it and and the value of that where do you hope it's going to go and and what impact do you hope it will have well i think i'd start by answering that with what i understood from what she told me to be her two hopes mm-hmm so one of those was that poets would appreciate it because she was a voracious reader, extremely well-read poet. She'd um, taught herself Russian when she was in high school and translated Akhmatova into English and read Dostoevsky in the original. So she had a brilliant language mind. And so she'd been reading poetry since she was a teenager, pretty much nonstop. Um, so, and that's important to say, I think, within the context of discussing this book, someone who hasn't read it yet, because we're talking so much about the formal thought disorder, the fragmentation of language, but that was a fragmentation done by someone who had been immersed in poetry their entire life. So it's a very skilled, it's a very skilled play. So perhaps It's a virtuosic. So perhaps we should make a point of saying this Part of this book is Christina Bailey, Canadian poet. Poet, yeah, exactly. A strong right. part of this is Christina Bailey, Canadian poet. And I've already had responses from poets who totally confirm that um, that it excites them no end. Um, so that is was one of her central hopes. 
Um, and she simply felt that her poetry could never make it out into the world without a context. She couldn't do any of the things necessary to take it out. So that's very important. Um, and then the second one is she really, she said there were very few, there were, there are books written by people suffering from severe depression. Um, there aren't that many books, she, to her knowledge, written by schizophrenics, where it's the voice of the schizophrenic person, someone, not schizoaffective disorder. I've, um, I've read the wonderful, um, the, um, it's not the complete schizophrenias, the, <laughs> the schizophrenias in plural, and I'm missing suddenly a word from the title. Um, that came out recently, uh, an American book that's done fantastically. The author's wonderful, um, wonderful essayist, and she suffers from schizoaffective disorder, so is far more f functional within the world than Christina could ever have hoped to be. Okay, yeah. Um, so I think she saw this as, that was definitely one of her goals, was to speak about the nature of her illness from the inside, in, from the inside. and as much someone. as possible not compromising her way her her greatest compromise being these letters of prose addressed to me but that there be for every one of those letters examples of her writing where she's speaking in what she considered her truer voice which right. is a much more fragmented one so that that is now also, one of my goals is to take that out mm -hmm. um, and and to shed light on the fact that it's um that that creative process is really important. Um, she says in this, so her letter was um, and sister language, the result of Martha's respectful curiosity. <laughs> and eventual enthusiasm for my <laughs> writing has rescued me from hell. My creative and intellectual vigor and my selfhood have been restored. Now, I think it's important to say there that by her selfhood restored, she means her fragmented selfhood. This because does not, there wasn't just one. This does not mean that this process brought all those fragments together. Her mind was as shattered after writing this book, but that that shatteredness was... The mosaic that is Christina. That is Christina was able to speak. Right. That, to me, was what she meant by restored. Mm -hmm. um, the sister language experience has worked. It has reached me and strengthened me. That's as far as I've been able to get with this speech. I had two other ideas, but decided against both. The first was that I would have liked to try reading to you from a text I've been working on called Packhorse Rosewater. This is the first comprehensible prose work I've ever, ever managed to produce by using a constraint, which is that its only vowels are A, O, and E. One aspect of my experience of the schizophrenic brain is that while terrifyingly chaotic and self-attacking, it is mercifully obsessed with patterns. But perhaps, like the autistic brain, only with certain pattern patterns or types of pattern. The schizophrenic brain is also naturally ingenious. Paranoia is one of the brain's more disastrous ways of channeling these various tendencies and arises as a survival mechanism in response to real helplessness. A partial inability to communicate normally 
is a causative factor in this helplessness. Ironically, paranoia is a way to try to engage with the human world on that world's terms using its social languages. So that, to me, is, I think, a significant challenging or criticism of... what we do in our social interaction, which she saw as enormously deceitful. Right. You know, yeah. almost like a child looking at adults going, well, you're not telling each other what you're really thinking and yeah. what's really, you know. So all of that... Don't lecture height- me about honesty. Exactly, heightened and yeah. magnified. Um, while, um, And then she says... While paranoia is destructive, the schizophrenic's lively intellect, creative ingenuity, and pattern obsessions are not. A combination of these is of great potential value. To reach reach someone who is schizophrenic and creative can only be done, in my experience, by connecting with the person through the person's creative endeavor. And once you've achieved it, keep at it. By taking this approach, Martha and Sister Language have not only achieved what 10 years of dedicated professional psychiatric treatment failed to achieve, they have begun to reverse some of the corrosive and erosive effects of that well-intentioned but ultimately for me disastrous treatment. I have tried to write a small essay about what has and hasn't worked, what does and doesn't work for me. It is a challenge to the psychiatric profession to use a more flexible intelligence when studying and interacting with schizophrenics and to engage respectfully with a patient's creative endeavor when such an endeavor is present. This mini-essay is available for anyone who is interested. Thank you for your willingness to listen and for your ability to hear. And unfortunately, we don't have that es- that essay. Wow. So that was the speech that she wrote for the launch. Yeah. Which she was not, not able to. Yeah, not able to attend. Not able. Huh. This is a, this is a very powerful <laughs> work. And, I'm glad you feel that. And we're, we're really grateful that you have come into the studio and helped us see it through our ears. And um, I encourage our listeners to look for Sister Language by Martha Bailey and Canadian poet Christina Bailey. Thank you so much for your interest and your time, Dymphony. If you feel depressed in January, it's not just in your head. Seasonal affective disorder and post-holiday blues can hit hard after the parties and tinsel fade away and the bills arrive, leaving people worried and depressed. Seasonal Affectiveness Disorder, or SAD, has biological underpinnings and is fueled by less light. In darkness, the body produces more melatonin, causing sluggishness and decreased energy. Be gentle with yourselves, dear listeners, and seek support if you need it. If you need immediate assistance and you cannot find someone you trust who is willing to support you, dial a crisis line right away. All crisis lines are confidential. If you find yourself in an emergency, please dial 911. Help is out there. In Calgary, there are various ways to get help. In emergencies, the Distress Centre, a free 24-7 
Crisis Line can be found at 403-266-HELP-4357. And there is TTY for the hearing impaired, 403-3... For the hearing impaired, 403-543-1967... The Distress Center is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days of the year. When you make a call to the Distress Center, you will always get an answer, an open mind and a caring ear. An online chat is available from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily. Emails can be sent to help at distresscenter.com and are responded to within 24 to 48 hours, so call the crisis line if it is urgent. If you need non-urgent help, there's the Canadian Mental Health Association at 403-297-1402, which is located downtown on 7th Avenue Southwest. They're there from Monday to Friday, excluding holidays from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., and and on Tuesday and Wednesday from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Our peer support service provides the opportunity for anyone, individual, family member, or professional looking for a connection with others who is new to mental. There is also a CMHA peer support service which provides opportunity for anyone, individual, family member, or professional looking for a connection with others who is new to the mental health and or addiction community looking for information about a mental health diagnosis or the chance to speak with someone with lived experience. Email peer at cmha.calgary.ab.ca There's also... You can also get help at Access Mental Health, 403-943-1500, from Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Clinicians help people navigate the addiction and mental health system. They are familiar with both Alberta Mental Health Services and community-based programs and will explore options and direct refer clients to the most appropriate resource to meet their needs. Access Mental Health is a non-urgent service. Anyone is invited to call for information and options for addiction and mental health services. Or you could call 211-ALBERTA. 211 is a free, confidential, multilingual, and is available 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. Dialing 211 offers access to a network of community, social, and government-based services calls are answered by a by professional information and referral specialists who are trained to assess caller needs and refer calls to the most appropriate resources. And there's also 811 HealthLink Alberta. If you have a health concern, call HealthLink by dialing 811 for quick and easy advice from registered nurses 24-7 with help in more than 200 languages. They will ask questions, assess symptoms, and determine the best care for you. Remember, listeners, get help if you need it. And take care on these dark days of January. Thank you for listening to Writer's Block. The opening and closing theme for our show is Cloud Chaser by local band 36. You can hear more music from them at whatis36.com.